Frank Sheeran. I saying that right? Yeah, you said it right. Uh, under the contract, management can only fire a driver on very specific charges. So, you ever show up late? No. Do you have any moving violations? No. Do you drink on the job? No. Do you ever hit anybody? On a job? Yeah. I don't think so. All right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. Today we're at Industrial Light and Magic to meet with the Irishman's visual effects supervisor, Pablo Hellman. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman has generated considerable attention for the de-aging of actors Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, enabling the actors to play their characters over several decades. And Hellman is here to give us a deep dive into ILM's newly developed process. Hellman is a two-time Oscar nominee for 2005's War of the Worlds and 2002's Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. His credits also include Jarhead, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and Martin Scorsese's Silence. I'm Carolyn Chardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Pablo, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. There's been a lot of attention on your work on The Irishman for the de-aging process of Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino. For starters, what did you discuss with Marty and what was the purpose of creating this new process? Well, our discussion started about uh, four years ago. It was 2015. We were doing uh, silence in Taiwan. And uh, I had heard that he was doing uh, Sinatra next. And so we started talking about film, of course, over Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, I pitched to him the idea of doing a young Sinatra. And he said, you know, t tell me more about it. He's, he's a very curious person. And um, uh, I told him a little bit about, the, you know, what, you know, that that was basically going to be the next frontier in visual effects. And he said, well, you know what, I'm not doing Sinatra, but there's a project that I have it's called The Irishman that uh, it sounds like, you know, we could use some of that. So he m emailed me that script overnight, and the following day we were shooting, and I just, I read it overnight, and it was an incredible, was all 157 pages of the script. So I said, you know, look, we're in. Uh, I hadn't talked to ILM yet, but I said, you know, I'm sure that we can do, you know, a test of some kind. So he said, great, uh, we talked to producers. He said, why don't we talk back in New York? So about six months later, I got a call. I was in New York doing another project, and I got a call from Marty saying, you know, we want to talk about this test. And uh, he said, I got to tell you that if we do a test of something, it cannot, we cannot use any kind of tracking markers, you know, all that, you know, paraphernalia that you guys put in front of us, we cannot use because we're going to use Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and uh, Joe Pesci. And they are completely method actors, and they're not going to go for anything. And so we talked about a test. We did a test on the, a, a scene from Goodfellas, the pink Cadillac scene. And there I was. You know, we were in New York, and Bob De Niro showed up, 74 years old. He reenacts that scene. They went all out. They just made the set. They, you know, it was incredible. And so he did about two minutes of that dialogue, cursing, and you know, we recorded the test. We did the test with the film camera in the fourth director, and then two witness cameras uh, close to it. We didn't have a rig at that time, but we knew that if we didn't have any markers on the, 
the actor's face, we had to somehow come up with a way to create geometry from it. And the idea was that we could create geometry out of uh, lighting and textures, especially if we do some kind of a triangulation. So the most amount of uh, information we have, the better the triangulation is. So having three cameras there was the way to do it. We also knew that the witness cameras are always great, but uh, they're always, you know, not really taken care of. There's always stuff in, in front of them. They are just uh, always you not know, being paid attention to. So we decided, well, what if we, number one, we get great film grade cameras that are witness cameras, but we attach them to the director's camera. So they can never be put away by anybody. And also we are going to have to be, you know, the cameras will have to be attended by the camera department. That's great because camera department is number one on the set. So after doing the test about eight weeks, we showed the test to Marty and Bob uh, De Niro and they loved it. And that basically greenlit the movie. So you developed this three camera rig for the main camera and then two infrared witness cameras? At the time for the test, we did not have infrared. The reason why we went infrared for the witness cameras, which was the rig that we used for the whole movie, was because as we were developing the technology of creating geometry from light and textures, the differences between the key and the shadow, the, the ratio, uh, it was too much. And so we had to have a way to neutralize the differences between the key and the shadow side. Because the actors did not want to go into a controlled environment situation, the, the idea was that it was a markerless, no helmet cameras, no little cameras in front of them. And also, uh, the performance was going to be on set. So it was theatrical lighting and also the only time that we were going to get the performance. They were not going to come back and do a control environment. Control environment meaning we're going to control the lights and the space, the volume. So that was it. When we got the results of the test, even though it looked great, we realized that to do a production model, uh, to do 1,700 shots for the show or something like that, it was going to take some forward thinking. So the only way to control the light is to do it in a different spectrum that the director is seeing. So if the director is seeing everything RGB, then if we basically inundate the set with infrared light, then the light, uh, if it's coming from the cameras, from the, the position of the, the witness cameras, then the, the infrared light neutralizes the light direction. So what you end up with is an image that doesn't have any shadows. So then we created basically a ring of infrared lights that is put in front of the lenses of the witness cameras. Because we also realized that just by flooding the set with infrared light wasn't enough. Um, because infrared light works like any other light. So it creates shadows depending on where it is. But if the light is being directed from the lens, or around the lens that there is no shadows. So we spent about two years <laughs> uh, doing this rig, and we worked with Ari in Los Angeles and Rodrigo Prieto throughout. Rodrigo was in another So project. Rodrigo Prieto, the cinematographer, got involved at that point. Yes, I mean, I, I felt re really bad because I was just basically dictating what the rig was going to be and how big it was going to be, and he wasn't involved. So I called Rodrigo, who, uh, I have worked with him on silence, and I told him, you know, what we were doing, and he got involved uh, just to take a look at what we were doing. 
And so we created a, a, basically a rig that was 30 inches wide. Mm -hmm. So the center camera is the RGB camera and then two film grade cameras, two Alexa Minis on the side that were modified by Ari to be only infrared. And we put the rings on the lenses and then now this rig that was 30 inches long could go through uh, a door frame. Because you see, what happens is that in the United States, the door frames are 32 inches wide. So we had to go 30 inches so that they, we knew we had 200 locations. So we had to put the camera through a bunch of stuff. And then there was a weight of the rig that was about 84 pounds at the time. And uh, when we first put it on the technocrine, it just went to the, <laughs> to the ground. So we had to shed about 20 pounds of the rig. So finally, and we ended up with the poundage was about 64 pounds. Yeah. How did that size dictate, or did it dictate, the types of shots that were staged? No, it did not. I mean, it basically, we never said no to the, you know, to the director or the DP. We never put any restrictions or any movement. We put that rig in the, on a technocrane, on a jib bar, on a, you know, three sticks, uh, on a dolly. We even made it so that we could, uh, there were two Steadicam shots in the whole show. The first shot of the, the whole movie and one little shot in the middle of the, uh, the kitchen on one scene. But other than that, there was no other uh, Steadicam, but we did manage to put two cameras in the Steadicam. And then, because Scorsese usually works in two setups, so they're usually you know, conversation pieces, so he, he grabs the two sections of the conversation at the same time so that he doesn't have to do pickups. So it's all, it's all part of this actor, you know, uh, ready, you know, performance. So we had two, three camera setups, and so in the Steadicam we put two cameras in the Steadicam because that, that was the weight, and then we, we turned on the other, uh, the second setup that we had to give us three, basically, infrared uh, witness cameras. The thing about the rig is that the rig is married to the software that we developed. We knew that we had to get information from lighting and texture, and then we devised a way to get the information that we got from the set. But then we had to take those three cameras and then figure out a way to compute the three cameras with RGB and infrared into one setup that would give us geometry. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do, I do. And I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Ah, oh, I'm glad to hear that. So the next step is the software that you used. Would you explain what that software does and then who did that information go to? Right, so now that we had a way to capture the performance uh, with no markers uh, and onset, then we had to have a way to decode that, all that information and make sense of it. So the first thing that we did is develop a piece of software that would uh, take the RGB information and uh, we'll take a look at the light and textures and create geometry from it on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. So what it does is it uh, takes a look at the information and then compares it to a digital you know, human that we have built that matches the contemporary actor, you know, a 76-year-old, 79-year-old, whatever, whatever that, that actor was. And then deforms the, the mesh to match those things, the original digital double. 
and then it creates that one frame and then it moves to the next frame and it, that's the same thing for the you know for the rest of the sequence that's when we started realizing the limitations of the system because an actor is uh, has a phone in his hand or or there's somebody that you know because of Scorsese, they put people in front of it and smoke and glass and all kinds of things. So there's a lot of occlusions. So to do that, then the witness cameras would help us because the witness cameras were, you know, separated from the center camera. And in that case, it would give us information that was behind the occlusion. To do that also, part of the setup in the rig was that the cameras were running at uh, 48 frames a second and if 45 degree shutter because we needed the sharpest images possible, you know, on the witness cameras. So the software took a look at the RGB camera, then it took a look at the uh, infrared cameras, and basically it computed the three camera information into one triangulated piece of geometry. And then did that about 1700 times for the show, and then we were done. <laughs> and that was delivered to ILM. And then tell us about the work that happened over there. Once all that information came to ILM, then uh, the software works basically like a black box in which you put all kinds of information and then you press a button and then the computer, uh, the system just computes everything. So the first thing that, that we need to do is uh, do the match moving. And the match moving has to be straight on, not only through the three cameras, but also uh, there's a imagination of the... Uh, head and the shoulders and the body of the actor because we're going to replace completely by computer-generated uh, renders, you know, all the way from the shoulders all the way to the to the top of their heads. So first that layout. Then there is a uh, because the system works on lighting. Then there is the the all the HDRIs uh, and all the information that we take on the set has to be basically decoded and uh, put into a rig into a light rig. Also, every one of the setups was lightered, but it wasn't like usually happens on set that you just go twice, you lighter the set, and that's it. We had to do it every time because every time Rodrigo changed the lights, the lighter will give us the information of where the instruments were. Because then we combine the lighter with the HDRIs, the lighter will give you the, the position of the cameras, and the HDRI will give you the intensity of the lights. So we put all that together with some rotor work just to make sure that we only, you know, worry about the head and the shoulders and the neck. Um, and then to be clear, from the neck down, you used the actors. Yes, we used the actors for what they were. Uh, there was a lot of uh, also manipulation of the, of the bodies because throughout the show, they basically gain weight as they gain age. Uh, so we had to take some uh, weight out of them at the beginning of the project. And then, uh, basically, you put all that stuff in it, in, inside the box of this piece of software that we call Flux. And basically takes all of that information and it gives you, you know, every, you know, renders every frame for that. But that only gives you the performance capture of the old actor. Then there is the retargeting part. Throughout the process uh, of, um, you know, um, shooting, we also developed digital doubles for the actors at their ages, but also we had variations for the actors depending on how old they needed to be throughout the film. And so for De Niro, uh, it was like from 24 to... The whole film is like from 24 to 83 until he dies, uh, but visual effects took like from 24 to about 60, and then after that it was makeup. So we had a model that went through about 
uh, four or five different variations of ages. And then we took, you know, that performance that we capture as, an, as a 76-year-old, and we retargeted that performance to whatever age we needed for the film. To create the look at the different ages, mm. did you go back and look at old films or tell us a little bit about that development process? Well, there was, uh, we spent about two years um, building libraries for the three actors for the targeted ages for all these different films. So we, and we uh, cataloged those, uh, those entries either by subject, like for instance, we had uh, a library that was only for eyes, only for nose, only for mouth or chin. Uh, wide shots, uh, close-up shots, exterior shots, interior shots. There was all kinds of ways that you can look for information. And then we created an, an AI system that basically after we render a picture, we would input it into this AI, another kind of a black box, you know, close uh, software that would look through all the library, would run through all the whole library, and it would just give you a, a snap of shots that looked like the ones that we were rendering. So, and he looked at lens, uh, lens, you know, size and also lighting direction and rotation. And uh, it was just incredible. It was a really great sanity check for us to take a look at the, what we were rendering and what, how did that compare to other films. I think the important thing there is that, you know, Marty wasn't going for, when, when we, you know, rewind to 30 years before, he didn't want to see Jimmy Conway from Goodfellas. He wanted to see Frank Sheeran as a young person. So he designed, you know, that character to be different than whatever he had done before. It's the same as if you were looking at Untouchables, you know, in whatever year that was, uh, and you saw De Niro look like Al Capone, you know, and he had gained weight and lost, you know, hair, and then you said, you know, wow, he, I wanted to look like deer hunter, you know. He doesn't, because he was designed for that character, and that's exactly what he did for, what Marty did for this movie. He designed those characters to be different than anything else that he had done. One specific case is, for instance, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci, in this movie, at 53, uh, the way he's, he was never that thin, you know, in real life. So we did take a look at Casino and, and Goodfellas and uh, uh, even some other stuff like uh, Home Alone and those kinds of things because it's kind of like the age. But he was never that thin and uh, Marty wanted that character to be thin. And the same thing with Al Pacino. So in those cases you worked with the actual body but you were able mm -hmm. to shave off some of the some, weight basically. Yeah, some of the shape of that. Uh, same thing with Al Pacino. We look at Heat and some other movies around that time. Um, but we know that uh, Hoffa, Al Pacino plays Hoffa, so he plays like from 44 to about 62 when he dies. So we knew that we weren't going to go really, really young, that these characters were going to be 30 years younger, but, you know, the actors are, you know, 76, and, and, and uh, Al Pacino was 78 when uh, we shot the movie. So that was the idea. I, I know... It's difficult, you know, I, I thought we were gonna go a lot younger in certain cases or, or different, but uh, Marty really wanted to design those characters in a specific way because he thought that those characters had a really rough life and they had lived a, in a specific way that was different than the way uh, we live now. Now, Marty's longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, edited this film. How did that impact the editing department? 
Well, from a production point of view, they everybody knew, all the creative team knew that they had to turn over shots early. So they, uh, and you know, having worked with uh, Marty before, I, to be honest, I thought that was never going to happen. And uh, I thought, also, they were informed that if they changed takes after we started working, it was basically a do-over. Because we had to recapture everything, rematch, move everything, recalculate the light, redo everything. Uh, you know what? This movie has been three and a half hours for about a year and a half. They have not changed a thing. They, I think they omitted like 20 shots in 1,700 shots. It's like, like it never happened to me in 30 years. They turn over 50 shots while we were shooting. So because they knew that we had to develop the software. And, and the way we developed software was kind of like running the Grand Prix while you're building the Ferrari. You know, kind of like, you know, you're pushing it, you're pushing it. At some point, you jump in it, and then you get a bunch of people fixing things. And we worked for about a year and a half in all the shots. And at the end of the process, we went back to some of the shots that we did at the beginning, and we changed them because the software had gone so well. And also because it is a brand new piece of software, there was no artist for it. And so we had to train, you know, about 50 artists that were coming from uh, layout, from effect sims, and because basically it's between layout and effect simulation and lighting is basically what this software does. So towards the end of the process, we ended up with a generation of artists that were completely different than the way they started. And the dailies was completely different also because in dailies usually you have what well, layout dailies so you can have a TD dailies or compositing or sometimes TD and compositing goes together. In this case, we all had to be together, layout and lighting and uh, and compositing, because we needed to make sure that uh, problems could be solved in different disciplines, and also all the all the flux people. So sometimes there was a flux problem that, you know, we would say, well, it, it's going to take flux longer than if uh, we solve it in compositing, or if we solve it in layout first and then we give it back to flux. It was an incredible, you know, process. Dailies ran really long, like we started at 9, and, you know, it would, it would be like 12.30, we'd still be in dailies uh, talking about shots. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. What was the age or the performance that kept you up at night that really gave you the most trouble? Uh, you know, it's funny because I think that all the shots and all in all assets were completely the same level of difficulty. You know, yeah, I know that when you bid a show, you say, you know, well, there's like easy shots, medium shots, and hard shots. All the close-up work, hard. It doesn't matter what asset it was. If the behavioral likeness is not there, you're in trouble. It doesn't matter how good your textures are, how much pores you have in your face or you render. You know, for me, it is about the performance because this project was about performance. If you don't have that behavioral likeness there because you're going for the likeness, you have nothing. It takes you out of the picture. So it's been an incredible, you know, process of, of uh, understanding how we emote you know, and, and I know it sounds cliche, but we actually did not use any keyframe animation at all. I mean, everything that we have done 
it's all computer uh, solved for the capturing of the performance. And then the retargeting is not a math problem anymore. It's a challenging of design and how you get there. One of the reasons why we did not use keyframe animation is because there is a lot of genetic connections that are made for us uh, that we have no control over that make us who we are. And those connections are not known to anybody other than the person who makes them, the actors. That's why if I if we put an animator in the middle of it, as good as an animator is, and I love animation for other projects, it wouldn't have the information needed to uh, come up with the likeness of that actor. And so we let the computer figure that one out, especially because we didn't have markers. So we know that if you take historically a look at uh, animation capture, we started with, I don't know, 10, 15 dots, then we went out to, you know, 30, 40, then, you know, now we're about 200 or so, something like that. And basically what we're looking for is a resolution of the mesh that is created by the, uh, by the dots. The more dots you have, the more resolution you have, right? But you can't do thousands of markers on the face because it takes you two hours as it is right now for 138 markers. But now we don't have to deal with markers anymore. Now we have to deal with the mesh and deformation. And, and so, all these little things that De Niro does with his chain all the time and uh, the fact that Joe Pesci can move his eyebrows from left to right in different directions incredibly, you know, and we learn all that stuff by looking at those performances is being captured by, uh, by the software without having to come up with that because an animator would know that. So what did the actors say when they saw their younger selves? Well, the first test, you know, is that thing that uh, De Niro says, you know, hey, you, know, you just gave me 30 more years of my career. You know, that was that was really funny when he said that the first time, and now he repeats it all the time. Oddly enough, it probably will give us 30 more years in our careers if we get this right, I thought. <laughs> um, but they were very guarded. You know, they, they loved the stuff. I think there is also a kind of a, a an understanding of this is what I look, now and this is what I used to look and the whole film is about the passage of time I think and so and that's why the movie is three and a half hours <laughs> uh, but it's also a look into passage of time from somebody that has lived you know a full life and has a lot more to live but it's a completely different perspective you know it's, it's the same perspective that you have when you're a kid and you remember your room when you were a kid in it with a specific you know size and then you go back to that room you know 40 years later and hey this doesn't look like it this looks smaller it's that thing that marty has arrived at that he sees everything through that lens so let's talk about the impact this could have on the business i assume you started to show the process to other directors are you getting yeah. other projects that yeah we are we are getting a lot of other projects uh, well i'd say probably about three or four uh with scripts that were um somewhere you know in some some shelf and they're they're they seeing the possibilities i think the achievement is really the markerless performance on set and the fidelity of the performance that we're getting so i just can't wait for all the actors to take a look at this and say you know kind of like what? I don't have to wear 138 markers on my face and I don't have to go through two hours of makeup and I can actually do what I'm hired to do, which is do a performance with another actor in a set environment that doesn't require me wearing a great pajama suit. 
you know. So for the projects that are going to be using the technique going forward, is it driven by the needs of the story or is it something that traditionally you would have done it in a different way and then this is just the technique that they chose? Well, in this particular case, uh, it was driven by the methodology of the actors, what they wanted to employ. And number two, by the story itself, because we knew that the editing was going to be back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we had three assets, right? Three actors. If you were to say, I'm going to cast every actor in, in, you know, as a younger person, it would have been impossible for the audience to follow that story and to keep the connections between the, uh, you know, the, the older Frank Sheeran and the younger Frank Sheeran, uh, and the same thing with the other assets. So it's completely uh, story-driven, and I think that it's kind of like the definition of it, you know, visual effects, following the story, and making the story happen for the audience. Marty asked me a couple of times, uh, he said, you know, by the way, he, he, he did not review intermediate takes. You know, we would... We would take a look at, the, he would turn over the shot, we would work on it for, you know, eight, nine weeks or whatever that took to do the shot, and we would show time. And then he would react to it as a final, you know, whether he thought that that was, uh, you know, could go in the movie or not. Generally, it was a good reaction. He never actually questioned the, the behavioral likeness. He would ask us for more texture on the skin or put some, you know, wrinkles on the on the top of the eyelids or something like that, but it was never about the performance. And then if there was a problem, we would negotiate, you know, how we would bring back something that he felt it wasn't in the original select. You said you used makeup for the later years. Do you find yourself working more closely with the makeup department on a film like this, and how are those decisions being made, or, you know, are there instances where you would combine both techniques? Well, uh, working with the makeup department was great. We knew, as you take a look at this whole huge project that we've been working on for four years, you basically have to pick your battles. And you say, okay, I can do the faces. I know I can do the faces. I know that the hair is going to be trouble because it's going to be a lot of sim work and uh, a lot of grooming work and uh, I know that the clothes are going to be a problem because of sim and things like that. So we said, what if we work with the makeup department to get the hair from the set. So basically uh, we would uh, replace the faces but not the hair. Well, it turns out that the edges of the, the wigs are a problem. So we ended up cleaning up all the hairlines anyway. So we had to render hair. But we would meld it with the makeup work. Throughout the visual effects work, there was no makeup on the actors. There was no markers and there was no any kind of beauty makeup. There was a, uh, a cream that we put on the actors just so that it would take uh, away the highlights. Because remember, the software takes a look at lighting, so if there's highlights, the deformation changes there. But other than that, at some point, we go into makeup. So when you take a look at the movie, you have to kind of back yourself from that point in terms of visual effects. There's a section of the movie around when Jimmy Hoffa goes to jail and that the three characters switch into makeup. And at some point, there are some shots that are CG and there are some shots that are makeup in the same sequence. Because we had to, we had to basically do a, a proof of concept in CG and then gave it to makeup and see if it, if it would work. And then we back ourselves into back into makeup. But 
it was great working with makeup. Uh, um, I think at the beginning of this project, I worked with Bill Corso. I don't know if you know him, but right. uh, yes. yeah, he's a, he's a great makeup artist. And um, I talked to him about this project, and he said, "Well, you know, the problem with us," he said, he was talking about makeup, "is that sometimes our actors don't look like the likeness that we know of." And we have that problem. I said, we have that problem too. We have the, we have a model that basically doesn't change, right? Which is completely different than life. Because an actor, when he shows up on, on set or she shows up on set, they have like they ate differently, they uh, they exercise differently. They, there's 108 days in a shoot, so who knows what they're going to look like, you know, throughout their. So I said, we have the same problem. I say, how do you fix that? And he says, well, I go in and paint, you know. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe we shouldn't develop one asset. You know, maybe we should develop an asset that basically is a, is a free-moving asset that basically could be painted uh, very quickly, you know, in 3D or in 2D just to get to the likeness. Uh, so working with Carla White, you know, that um, uh, she she's the makeup person for, uh, for Bob, it was great to work with her. And... Um, I just got an email from her, you know, saying that she saw the movie and she loved it. Now he also wore contacts. He did, yes. That was also we need to we needed to back ourselves from that. We thought about it with and we talked with Marty. He was adamant that he wanted Frank Sheeran to have blue eyes because the original uh, person had blue eyes, and it was a risky decision because uh, at some point in the movie we switched to contacts. Now for the visual effects work, he didn't wear contacts. So we had to match into the contacts. But the contacts ended up too bright. The reason being that throughout the movie, there are like four different looks. There's Kodachrome look, there's an ectochrome look, there's a push, uh, one stop, and there's a normal. And I talked with uh, Rodrigo about it, and we were looking at that stuff, and he had to basically decide, that we had to decide on the contacts based on the basically uh, work print. You know, was coming as a work print from the DI, so we, you know, made a commitment, and then we, <laughs> we ended up having eye mats for every one of the shots throughout the whole movie because we had to change them. They were too bright. Can you believe this weather, Frank? Yeah. Huh? It's 85 degrees Ooh. outside. Perfect. Hey, Tony Jack. Jimmy. People freezing to death in New York, and look at us. Huh? Hey. Why we don't live here all year round is what I want to know. Oh. Beautiful. It's summer. What? It's summer. People aren't freezing to death in New York. It's summer. In my mind, it's always eight degrees in New York. I'm making a point. Making a point? Making a point dressing like that? Is that you dress for a meeting? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For a meeting? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I dress in a suit. For a meeting. And you're late. What impact do you think this process is going to have on schedules and budgets going forward? Well, I think that if you take the burden out of the actors, that burden doesn't go away. It gets spread throughout the production. So the first one that hits is the camera department. So the camera department now doubles in size because now you have three cameras instead of one. And because of depth of field differences in infrared, you need a focus puller that is only for those cameras. 
there's one for the RGB camera and another one that uh, works with the two cameras, with the two witness cameras. So then there is that. Uh, then there is the production design uh, because, uh, you know, like I said, the, the rig has to is, has a certain weight and a certain, you know, uh, length and, and, and it has to go through different uh, parts of the set. So the set has to be built that way. And then in terms of post-production, there wasn't really no much difference. We could have gone with what everybody else was doing which was marker stuff and control environment, and it would have taken the same, the same time. The only thing that we invested was in R&D and creating a completely brand new way of doing things and, and uh, creating a brand new artist kind of type. But other than that, there is no financial or post-production impact. In other words, we didn't take longer because we were doing this. There is one project that we're using it right now on but it's for a different thing, you see. This is this is used for de-aging, but it could be used for something else because you could you could get the performance and then retarget it to a creature that has nothing to do with the actor that did it. See, what what this does is frees the actors from having to do their performances somewhere else. Also, research tells us that whatever our eyes are doing, our body does. So if you take an actor out of the set and you put him by himself or herself in a controlled environment in front of, uh, even, even if it was a different actor, you know, just so that for an island, that doesn't do it. Because that actor, when, when you're taking a look at the, Joe Pesci and, and De Niro, when they look at each other, they're not only looking at each other's eyes, they're also looking for each other's um, uh, feedback, you know, whether that person understood what you said or not, and they're reacting because they're out living. They're also in, on set and they're checking out something else, you know, that is going on in the background, and they go back to them. If you're in a controlled environment, you ain't going to have that. That's the, that's the other thing that happened to me. I mean, I worked with uh, performance capture on, on other movies, you know, for five or six years before I got to this. There's a reason why I did this project. I had been working with the other system before. And I sometimes I, I would look at a shot and say, you know, there's something wrong there that happened in the performance. I can't really put my finger on it, but I have to deal with it. Well, now I know. It's the other stuff that happens. It's, it's that with what the actors call the truth, you know. I remember working uh, with um, Ewan McDonald on a, in a movie. He showed up on set and it was all blue. And he said, what the F is going on here? It's all blue. I can't, you know. Well, you know, I thought, well, I mean, he's an actor. He should be able to do that. You know, now I understand. It's not just about that. It's about the truth that they feel when they are with each other, you know. In addition to this, the rest of the work on the film from a visual effects I imagine a lot of environment work. Uh, yes, there's a, there's a period work. There's like three or four shots that are a jam, really. There are a, a combination of starting on location and ended up inside the set. Like there's some shots of uh, starting in the middle of the street in New York and going inside Umberto's clam house. What happens inside Umberto clam? That's in a set. And, but we started the shot on location in New York, so we had to match both things without motion control, because motion control is a thing of the past now, right? So we got that to work. There's a, a really long shot, about 4,000 frames, of a, a bar, in a barber shop where somebody gets killed. Well, that was a set, but the bodyguard exits the shop and goes into a location. Uh, it was the Roosevelt Hotel in, in New York. 
And those two sets had to work. And I gave Marty three or four options. I said, "Well, we can, you can start with the you can start with the bodyguard. The bodyguard goes by, and then we stay with the person who's going to get killed, and then we switch pan into into the other set." And I gave him like three, three different options. He says, "No, no, no. I want to stay with the bodyguard." Yeah, but the bodyguard goes, you know, right from one set into into location. I said, "Yeah, you'll figure it out." So we morphed between, uh, you know, in the bodyguard uh, between one take and the other one. So it's working with Rodrigo and Scott, you know, the the camera uh, operator and everybody else. That was also a steady cam shot. So very difficult work there that is very difficult to tell because nobody will, you know, it's basically thankless, you know, because it's, nobody knows, you know, what we did. You know. Well, congratulations on the film and thank you so much. Thank you. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.